Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Welcome to the Rusk Report on ESPN AM 1520, blanketing 17 states and much of Canada. I was recently so honored to be in the White House with Rita Cosby of CBS Inside Edition. And next to us, 10 feet away from the president of Poland and the president of the United States and the first ladies, was General Jacques Paul Klein, Undersecretary General of the United Nations, and it was an honor to meet with him, and I asked him if he would come on the radio program, as we've had such generals on this program as General Erzik, General Walters, General Westmoreland, General Scott, General Singlaub, and now we have General Jacques Paul Klein. A little information about him. He is a lecturer, writer, and consultant on foreign affairs. From 2005 to 2006, he was the Frederick Schultz Visiting Lecturer in International Affairs and Visiting Professor of Public and International Affairs at Princeton University's Woodrow Wilson School. From 2003 to 2005, he served as the United Nations Secretary General Special Representative and Coordinator of United Nations Operations in Liberia with the rank of Undersecretary General. He previously served as Special Representative and Coordinator of United Nations Operations in Bosnia and Herzegovina, Principal Deputy High Representative in the Office of the High Representative of Sarajevo, and United Nations Transitional Administrator for Eastern Slavonia, Baranja, and Western Sirmium in Croatia, a great man who has given his life to our country, and we admire you and thank you for that. Let's talk. You were with the U- United Nations as Undersecretary General, and there's a lot of different feelings about the United Nations. They feel that often there are many left-wing interests that are leading the United Nations against the United States' interests, and also I believe we pay 25 percent of the cost of the United Nations, the United States of America. How do you feel about the UN and its value? General Jacques Paul Klein. Thank you for that very nice introduction. I would certainly hire hire that man if I could get a hold of him. <laughs> you're, you're him. You're him. <laughs> but listen, yeah. very honestly, uh, you need something like the United Nations. It's a it's an umbrella. It's an umbrella under which you know 193 some countries have a small voice. The Maldives, the Seychelles, people, uh, countries that you otherwise never hear about. And it's uh, also true that the United Nations. And remember, the United Nations is a very large structure. You have the World Health Program. Uh, food for peace, the agriculture, civil aviation. There are a lot of things the United Nations does that people are really unaware of. And there are a lot of times, I think, when uh, they carry the water we don't want to carry. You know, how much does the U.S. want to be involved in peacekeeping and, and a lot of these other kinds of issues uh, in parts of the world that people don't want to go to? So there's a need for it, uh, but it also demands that the, the organization itself be responsible and be responsive. As you said, the U.S. is a major contributor, and the U.S. has a very large role. And as you know, the, the United Nations is basically the Security Council, the 15 countries that make up the management. That's five permanent representatives 
and the other rotators. And they're the ones who kind of set the agenda. And we do play a very, very large role. Very good. Now, let's talk about NATO. We talked about the United Nations. You were in uh, Europe trying to keep peace there around uh, Croatia and many parts of uh, uh, Eastern Europe. And uh, the president has praised the efforts of NATO, but then he has said that these countries we are protecting should pay their fair share. It shouldn't always be the United States paying the whole bill as it's billions of dollars. Uh, let's talk about the importance of NATO and the funding of NATO. General Jacques-Paul Klein. Well, obviously, uh, many of the European countries previously did not live up to their commitments. But, you know, the I hate to say this very callous, but would you rather fight the war in Europe or the United States? So we had a large force presence in Europe for many, many, many years. And NATO provided a solidarity, uh, again, an organization in which many other European countries, the smaller ones, could play a role. And after the Cold War, after the defeat of the Soviet Union, it did maintain peace, tranquility, etc., in Europe for a very, very long period of time. And you have to grant that, in other words. Now, as to Croatia, there's a good example of what we talked about earlier. Uh, the, the problem you had in Croatia is, you know, part of Croatia was occupied by Serb forces. And just around that juncture, the Dayton peace accords were signed. And suddenly, everyone went to Bosnia. I mean, all of NATO went to Bosnia. And I remember calling the senior general at NATO and saying, look, I could use some help here in Croatia, in eastern Slavonia. And he told me, Jacques, I'd like to help you, but unfortunately, we're really committed to... Uh, to Bosnia. And lo and behold, then you turn this over to the U.N. And, uh, and President Trudman said at that time, I will never accept another U.N. mission in Croatia unless it's had, uh, it's had by an American as a general. Scene, uh, when Dick Colbert called me and said, would you like to do this? But that was a U.N. mission headed by an American with at least, you know, 20 other countries involved. I mean, we're talking about Indonesia, we're talking about Jordan, uh, we're talking about uh, Czech, uh, the Czech Republic, the uh, Slovak Republic, uh, the Belgians, on and on and on. And it was a successful mission uh, under the U.N. umbrella with a lot of support. I mean, Secretary Albright and others played a very dominant role in making sure that this mission worked, and it did. And we finally basically negotiated the Serb army's withdrawal from Croatia. Croatia then was fully integrated. We tried to also guarantee that the Serb minority in eastern Savonia's rights were protected, religion, language, etc., and ultimately the mission, the mission worked. And we also, as you probably know, and I recommend a book to you by Julian Borger called The Butcher's Trail, which discusses the war criminals in the former Yugoslavia. Mm -hmm. uh, the mission in eastern Savonia actually captured the first indicted war criminal under sealed indictment and sent him to The Hague. And in that context, again, many of these other countries played a role. And I was fortunate in eastern Savonia to have a very small cadre of Polish special forces called the GROM, the G-R-O-M. And they were absolutely instrumental in the, in the capture, the detention, capture, movement to the Hague of that war criminal. And indeed, I learned later from the book that uh, at that juncture, when this was all presented to President Clinton, uh, he said, you know, this argues very, very strongly to facilitate Poland's early entry into NATO. So that was a, a concomitant part of that process. We're learning a great deal from a great patriot who served our country, Jacques Paul Klein, retired general, under Secretary General of the United Nations, 
retired. If you're listening in McLean, Virginia, Manhattan, Buffalo, or Montreal, drop us a note. To Brian Rusk, ESPN Radio, 500 Corporate Parkway, Suite 200, Buffalo, New York, 14226. This station has received letters as far away as Scandinavia, New Zealand. We'd like to hear from you. ESPN, yes, sir? It was a pleasure meeting you at the White House and also a pleasure meeting Rita Cosby. uh, And, uh, you know, whether you remember her father's history fighting in in Warsaw before the Russians finally crossed the river and help finally deliberate the city. Uh, you're talking about real Polish patriotism. And as I, I said at the time, and I, I wrote a letter to the, uh, the Polish president, and I said it's, it's hard to, uh, to really say enough positive about a people who struggle for centuries you know, to maintain their culture and religious identity, uh, a, a nation that was partitioned, occupied, suffered horrendously in World War II, but never let go of their dream of an independent, free, and democratic Poland. And the Grom I had with me, uh, that Polish Special Forces Force, which had been trained, by the way, by, by SAS and other Western countries, are a perfect example of that kind of NATO understanding and cooperation. Well, it, it, she is a great lady, uh, Rita Cosby, and for years her father uh, went down about 50 pounds in weight, and he was living in the sewers of Warsaw, fighting the Nazis during World War II, and Rita was in uh, tears when the President of the United States called her up to salute her late father. It was very beautiful, and I was very honored to be next to General Klein when this took place. It was very moving and very important. uh, Well, it's it's deservedly so, because do you remember, Poland actually saved Western Europe uh, from the, uh, at that time, the spread of Islam into Central Europe. Mm-hmm. And you remember, there was a very large force outside of Vienna. And Vienna would have fallen, and Western Europe would have fallen, if Jan Sobieski and the Poles had not come down and basically won the battle and saved Vienna. And Western, you could argue Western Europe, by many historians have said that. We're learning a great deal from General Jacques-Paul Klein, our guest today on the Rusk Report. And again, ESPN 1520 is streaming. You can listen live by going to our website, ESPN1520.com, and clicking on the radio.com or listen tab. And Western New Yorkers love their traditions, and the Ampol Legal has been writing about Polish-American traditions and events for over 50 years. News and features from a Polish-American perspective can be found in this weekly newspaper, as well as recipes and a calendar of events. Don't miss out on the next cultural presentation or polka dance by reading the Ampol Legal. The Ampol Legal is available in many Tops and Wegman stores. For home delivery, call 716-835. 9454, that's 716 835 9454, to have the latest news from Poland and Polonia in your mailbox each week. A little bit more information about General Jacques Paul Klein. Ambassador Klein was a career member of the Senior Foreign Service of the United States with the rank of Minister Counselor. He served seven diplomatic postings abroad and three tours in the Department of State and is the 2019 recipient of the DOCOR Foreign Service Cup. He is also a retired Major General of the United States Air Force. Now, when I met you, General Klein, Ambassador Klein, we talked about a dear friend of ours who passed uh, perhaps 15 years ago, Ambassador Vernon A. Walters, who wrote the book Silent Mission. 
He was the go-between with Pope John Paul II, Ronald Reagan, and Lech Wałęsa to destroy communism. Tell us your recollections of General Vernon Walters, who was on this program numerous times. What type of man was Vernon Walters, known as Dick Walters? Well, first of all, you have to remember he was a superb diplomat and really a linguist of the first order. And I was very privileged. I was kind of a mid-level officer. and We were in Morocco, actually in Marrakesh. And I was kind of a junior at the table. And the secretary turned to me and said, uh, Jacques, listen, turn around, uh, look at who's coming out on the patio. I think that's uh, Dick Walters. And I turned around, and he said, why don't you go ask him if he'd like to join us for breakfast? And I went over, and I invited the ambassador. He came down, sat down. And then he told us, you know, I mean, his first times in Morocco were during World War II, and all the other incremental things that he had done over the years, working closely with the Moroccan kingdom, trying to get the young king to the United States to get an education, all those, and then finally uh, an ambassador to the Federal Republic of Germany. So you're talking about a consummate diplomat, a man who devoted his life uh, to the security of the United States. And as I said, I, I speak you know, French and German and English, but this man also spoke Portuguese and Spanish and, and many, many other things. So uh, uh, a great hero, uh, a great diplomat, uh, you, you, someone you can't really say enough about. He's like basically a legend in many ways in the military and in the diplomatic service. Yes, a wonderful man, and I was so honored to know him, to spend dozens of hours with him, to have him on this program ten times. What a role model. He never married. He really was married to our country. He gave over 50 years of service to the United States uh, government. Now, let's talk about the threat of Iran. Um, President Trump is tough on Iran. He's putting forth new sanctions. People are very upset with the bombings of two tankers and then taking down a hundred thirty million dollar US paid for drone. How serious is this threat, General Jacques Paul Klein, and what should the USA do about it? Well obviously it is very serious and people don't know much about the history of, of Iran. As you know, Iran used to be called Persia and it was Persia until around nineteen thirty six when a group of Persian diplomats and government officials were in Berlin, that is Nazi Germany. And the Germans constantly kept looking for the origins of the Aryan people, if you remember that. Right. But in 1936 in Berlin, they convinced the Persians to change the name of, to Iran, in other words, to Aryan. Uh, and so somehow the Persians became honorary Aryans. Uh, and also, remember, they were trying to get Iran and, and Turkey into the war uh, against uh, the Allied powers. Uh, Obviously, the concept of someone with nuclear weapons with that kind of a fanatical regime is extremely dangerous. So what you do, you move forward with caution. You offer to negotiate. Uh, you even turn the other cheek at times in trying to come to an agreement. But uh, behind that, you always have to have uh, the willingness to use force. And you remember the American eagle, if you ever looked at the old eagles, mm -hmm. the old eagles had the wreath in the left hand, and the arrows in the right. And President Harry Truman is the one who said in the 40s, let's change that. Let's put the laurel wreath in the right hand and the arrows in the left. Let's understand that we always seek peace first. We all seek to, well, we seek to accommodate. We're willing to negotiate. But never forget that we have that quiver of arrows ready, and if we need them, to use them. 
Very good. We're learning a great deal from Ambassador and General Jacques-Paul Klein. I'd like to thank those who've called regarding our recent guest, Congressman Tom Reed, National Republican Committee man from New York State, Charlie Joyce, and Noel Nickpoor, who's on four times a week on Fox News. Coming up, we'll have Erie County Comptroller Stephen Mahalyu and Sheriff Tim Howard on the Rusk Report on ESPN AM 1520. Let's shift to another part of the world to North Korea. We were very worried a few years ago about nuclear warfare with North Korea. It seems that President Trump, with a couple meetings, has calmed down the situation quite a bit. Um, do you think it looks good for the future with North Korea with President Trump? Well, I think he's done a commendable job in keeping the thing under control. You see, the, the bottom line for North Korea is uh, there is no power there except the nuclear weapons. And what the leader of North Korea wants to do is to stay in power. And the only way he can do that is to use the nuclear weapons as a bargaining chip blackmail, because he realizes that without those nuclear weapons, or without the possible threat of nuclear weapons, his power would r rapidly atrophy. Uh, so you hopefully that the Chinese and others, uh, the Russians, would weigh in, stabilize the situation, understand that there are benefits to be gained by negotiation, there are benefits to be gained by denuclearization, that all you have to do is take a, uh, take a photo at night from a satellite and look at North and South Korea. And South Korea is a mass of lights and movement and commerce and industry, and North Korea is basically a blacked-out area with not very much going on. And if the leadership of North Korea wants a future similar to what South Korea has, with the kind of consumerism and uh, the, the generous uh, participation of a population in the developing wealth of a country, they need to understand that their best goal is denuclearize, negotiate, and those benefits may come to you. But as I said, he fears that without the nuclear weapons, without the nuclear threat, he doesn't have much leverage in a desperately poor country you know, where many people are always on the edge of starvation. Very good. A good education about the situation in Korea. Let's uh, look overall at the foreign policy of uh, Donald Trump. Uh, it seems we're at peace. He seems to sort of have a uh, effort that's similar to President Ronald Reagan of peace through strength. And uh, he's tough. He's strong, uh, but also seems to have compassion when needed. Uh, let's talk about the overall foreign policy of President Donald J. Trump. Well, it varies. As you said, you have to go country by country. Uh, what, we, what he did with President Duda in the White House was very interesting because he said, you know, we are basically going to be selling uh, advanced jet aircraft to Poland. There are already, I think, a thousand Americans in Poland, and there will be more. That kind of guarantees Poland security. It's a buffer in Central Europe against incursions from the east. Uh, so it depends where you look at what part of the world. He tried to engage in North Korea, which people have tried to do over the years without very much success. Now, you can criticize that we're not moving fast enough or that the leadership of North Korea doesn't seem that willing to be forthcoming. But the fact that there have actually been meetings, the fact that there is a discussion and dialogue uh, is, is something to be said uh, very positively. And also even with the Iranians, saying to the Iranians, look, uh, we're ready to negotiate. There are just certain things that you have to kind of live up to. But uh, there are things that we can discuss. There's a way forward. Uh, but I don't know with that kind of a strict, religious, authoritarian regime how much flexibility you're going to have. I think what you see in Iran also, which you should look at, it's very restive. The young people are restive. 
You see, in the old days, if you can imagine Europe in the 20s and 30s, who had a car in a village? <coughs> who had access? Who could travel? Uh, who could communicate? Well, today the world's a totally different place. In all these countries in the Arab world, uh, and that goes for Iran as well, young people hear the radio, they watch television, they get videos, they're on the Internet, and there's a limit to how long you can keep your population isolated, away from the news, not really willing to uh, give them the kinds of freedoms and flexibility that younger people really desire. Uh, and I really think, you know, looking at the Middle East in general, I, I really would say this. I think until in many of these countries, and talking about women for a minute, until women have the right to vote, until women in these countries are part of the body politic, I wonder if you can really have legitimate democracy. That's a very interesting question, you know, because uh, you see in the West how, what a dynamic role women play. We know that in Western Europe and the United States. But in the Middle East, how long will it take before women have some kind of equal status or are real participants in a democratic process, which I think would augur well uh, for the whole democratic process in the region as a whole? Well, there was serious um, criticism of Hillary Clinton taking millions of dollars for her foundation from countries where women had no human rights, where homosexuals had no human rights. Uh, and there was a very serious criticism of her for that. Uh, let's talk a little bit more about this base in Poland you referred to. Uh, General Walters always said that Poland suffered from bad geography. They didn't have mountains or rivers to separate them from other countries, and that's why they were invaded all the time. Now, there is an effort to have a major base in eastern Poland near the Russian border to prevent situations such as took place in the Ukraine. Are you in favor of a major base there, and do you think it will happen under President Trump and President Duda? Well, I think ultimately there will be some basing, and I think it'll, it'll help stabilize. I said it's a guarantor. You know, it's a, it's a, a way to say, look, uh, there is an American presence. Do not do anything foolish. And remember, the Poles, again, when we look at what they have suffered, literally the country was moved to the West. I mean, you understand that. And when you talk about a nation that was divided, divided between Prussia and Russia and Austria for a very long period of time, and yet they never, never, even under division, never maintained, never lost their religious or cultural identity and always sought and hoped for the day that there would be a free and, and independent and a democratic Poland, which came about as a result of World War II. And even looking at the, uh, the old uh, Warsaw Pact, East-West, I asked a, a Russian once about all these satellite countries, East Germany, Romania, Bulgaria, and so he said, look, we don't care about socialism in those countries or communism in those countries. They're only there for one reason. It's a buffer because of the fear of a Western invasion of some sort. Obviously, in the case of the Russians, the German invasion. So they never cared about developing any kind of social structures in these East European countries. They were buffers, buffers to keep the West at bay. And so I think, you know, a little base, we have a base in Hungary, etc. cetera. Uh, these are all little signs that the United States is willing to engage. The United States is kind of an umbrella, a guarantor, uh, willing to help if needed, and I think that's the case. Also, do a lot of training, obviously. Let's talk a little bit about Venezuela. Uh, communism never worked in uh, China, in Russia, in Havana, in Poland, and here we have a socialist in Venezuela with one of the largest oil supplies in the world. Hyperinflation, violence, uh, anarchy. Um, 
what should we do uh, with Venezuela? Should we aid and support uh, efforts for democracy there? What do you suggest, General Jacques-Paul Klein? Well, obviously you support democratic processes. The sad part for Venezuela and its people, as you know, Venezuela was actually the richest country in South America with its oil reserves. It was a very close ally of the United States, one of the few countries that had sophisticated American fighter plane planes in its inventory. Uh, but something went terribly, terribly wrong. Uh, probably lack of uh, distribution of wealth. Who knows what went on? But what you have now is a regime that basically is punishing its own people. I mean, Venezuelans are leaving en masse. And when people don't, don't want to stay in their own country, that's a, a terrible, terrible sign. So you can hope that by working with the opposition constructively, demanding free and fair elections, and that's the key, free and fair elections, not rigged elections, not re- elections where people are intimidated, that you can hope for some peaceful transition and change uh, in uh, in Venezuela. And you hope that other countries, not of this hemisphere, would stay out of that business. Because we do remember we had a Monroe Doctrine, which I think is still in effect. And I would hope that, the, uh, that they continue to understand that that Monroe Doctrine still applies. We have a few minutes left on the Rusk Report. Again, if you're listening in Cheektowaga, New York, Toronto, or Manhattan, drop us a note. Please write to Brian Rusk, ESPN Radio, 500 Corporate Parkway, Suite 200, Buffalo, New York, 14226. And Ambassador Klein received his undergraduate and graduate degrees in history from Roosevelt University in Chicago, Illinois, and has done postgraduate work in international politics at the Catholic University of America in Washington, D.C. The southern border, General and Ambassador Klein, how dangerous is this to the United States and to Western democracy having perhaps 120, 130,000 illegal aliens come to this country each month? How do you feel about it? Well, it's very dangerous. It just shows you how sad the mismanagement of the governments of Central America have been. That people are so desperate that they're willing to ride on boxcars, on trains, go by foot to what they still see as the promised land. Now, Americans should be proud of one thing. These people are not rushing to go to Venezuela, if you follow me. Mm -hmm. They're not rushing to go to North Korea. No, They're desperate to get into the United States, which for many people in the world is still the land of hope, the land of opportunity, a place where you can come and in one or two generations you can make it. If you learn the language, you work hard, you go to school, and you understand that you also have to contribute to the society. So I think we all have an enormous sympathy with these people. But the governments of Central America should have done years ago much to improve the lot of their own people. And you've had a series of mismanaged, ill-managed dictatorships, what have you, which drives these people out, leaves them no hope. And what they see is, and they don't know that much about the United States, except that this is a place where you can go, a place where others have go, have gone, and a place where you can be successful. That's what brings them here. The question is how to control that, because we can only take in so many people, or if you take people in, you want to do it constructively. I'm sorry, we have to bring the, the Rusk Report to a close on ESPN AM 1520. We're very well, honored to have such a great patriot, well, General and Ambassador Jacques Paul Klein teaching well, us. Special thanks to Kevin Carr, Director of Production. What were you going to say, General? I was going to say congratulations to you and keep up the good work. All right. Thank you. God bless. 
We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s, and each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month without a pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee at 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. See T-Mobile.com. 